this just happened a few weeks ago in Nashville. We were there for the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting. Yeah. And another prof here, a colleague of mine, Dr. Matt Queen, who's our professor of evangelism, he and I were walking through downtown Nashville, uh, right by the convention meeting hall. And we saw, I, I looked up there and I saw four guys in short sleeve white shirts and dark ties. And I thought, surely not. Uh, and I said, Dr. Queen, we're not going to our meeting. We're going to witness to four Mormon missionaries. And he said, let's go. He was all excited. Yeah. You know, after a few minutes of, of small talk, just ask a very simple question. Hey, tell me the one thing. You could boil your entire faith down into one thing. Tell me the one thing you appreciate the most about your faith. Very, very simple question. You know, don't give me the official answer. I've heard the missionary discussions. Mm -hmm. Don't give me something from one of the prophets or one of the apostles. Tell me what you appreciate the most about your faith. And it was interesting. We were talking to the, we didn't get to talk to all four of them. We got to talk to three of those missionaries in Nashville. But among those three, all three gave an answer that sounded something like, or some version of, it makes me happy mm-hmm. or it works for me and my family. Yeah, right. And that's usually what I get from Mormons when I ask them, this is what we got in Salt Lake for six years. When my friends and family and the people in my churches have like questions about the really weird stuff in the world of religion, they typically come to me. So I can't tell you what a thrill it was to have a conversation who can answer my weird questions about religion and religions. And that's Dr. Travis Kearns. Um, Really, truly. Like usually I have extensive notes when I do these interviews. Um, I've done a ton of research and like it's sort of a balancing act. Like you have to have enough there of a skeleton because I don't know these people before we start talking usually. So I want to know as much as I can about them. And actually, I'm fairly uh, obsessive in my research. Like a lot of times, I, I feel like I know everything about these people when I talk to them. But I'm going to be real with you. For the conversation that you're going to hear today with Dr. Kearns, um, I did personal research because, you know, I just I don't know Dr. Kearns personally. Um, he's from right where I live, um, right near us. And uh, so we have that in common. But when it came to the content, I really just wrote down a couple lines and things about Mormonism, LDS, Latter-day Saints, and we just pressed record and went with it. And it was awesome because, you know, Dr. Kearns and I are extremely like-minded in how we approach the study of world religions. And, and so I think that since you chose to listen to this show, maybe you've listened to some other episodes of ours, you like how we approach things at, at ATAP, specifically in how we approach apologetics and world religions. I think you're really going to like Dr. Kurtz too. And so I'm excited for you to hear it. Um, and I, last time I'm going to ask you to do this. I want you at some point today, if you haven't already, help us get this show into the hands of other people because we have the opportunity to be nominated for the people's choice podcast awards and the link to help us get nominated into the final round of voting for that is in the the show notes for today's episode but also in the instagram bio um, for all things all people all things dot all people on instagram so go vote it takes one minute and it would be awesome to see a show about christian thinkers you being one of them win that award wouldn't it wouldn't that be cool Um, and so, yeah, so please go do that. But you know what? Honestly, like I love talking to people about religions. I love talking to people about weird things in religions. And I have a feeling you do too, since you listen to this show. So I'm excited for you to hear today's conversation with this week's Christian thinker, Dr. Travis Kearns. Let's do it.
My next guest serves as associate professor of apologetics and world religions at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. His research and writing interests focus on the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, world religions, and the application of apologetics. He formerly served as a missionary and pastor in Salt Lake City, ministering among and to Latter-day Saints. He is the author of many publications in the field of world religions and specifically new religious movements, uh, currently working on multiple projects that I hope that you will check out in time to come. But it's including The Saints of Zion, an introduction to Mormon theology, a reference work that I personally use very often when working in the field of teaching on LDS theology. He enjoys hunting, fishing, being outdoors with his family, and anything related to the Clemson Tigers being from the very beautiful upstate South Carolina. It's my honor to have on the show today, Dr. Travis Kearns. Dr. Kearns, thanks so much for making time for this. Yeah, Jeremy, thanks for having me. Um, anybody who listens to this show, follows all things, all people on social media will know um, I'm excited to talk to another um, kind of people who study world religions. You and I actually just mentioned this pre-show. Uh, I think many people kind of look at us funny. Um, yep. You know, like um, I've been asked, why do you spend so much time studying uh, holy texts that aren't the Bible and um, all these other things? Uh, I, I'm, I've been, I, I talked to a lot of really awesome people on the show. I think I've been more excited for this conversation than almost any other, because it, ah. you find it's very rare to talk to somebody who thinks the same way as you do about new religious movements, cults, LDS, all these other things. You have to very rarely find like-minded people. Yeah, it's really small. It's a really small community. And especially in academics, it's even yeah. smaller community. Yeah. Yeah. Which is which is why I think um, for listeners who aren't familiar with what you mean by the community, that's why I do think you are really valuable. Um, because typically people who study and, and teach and work in new re religious movements, specifically, and when we say that, some of them don't seem new at all, but LDS and Jehovah's Witnesses, and then a lot of cults that have come along. Um, a lot of times the people who frequent that community are not by any means academic and, and oftentimes their, their methodology for teaching and research is um, anything but, uh, you know, stringent. And, and, and so um, what, before we get to LDS and some of the more technical stuff that I'm really looking forward to talking to you, how was it then that you found yourself where you're at, you know, working in that field, um, being able to kind of like teach and dabble constantly in, uh, LDS and new religious movements in general. Yeah. So what I found, I started studying the LDS church in January of 96, um, took a class in, in college in cults and new religious movements, minority religions in America, and was just immediately fascinated by Mormonism. Uh, you know, didn't grow up a Mormon, have no desire to ever be a Mormon, zero and none, uh, is about as far as my desire goes to be LDS. Um, but, uh, just again, fell in love with, with Mormonism. And as I started studying, what I found is there are kind of two divergent roads. Uh, in fact, one of my PhD students right now is writing his dissertation on this idea. Uh, and the two roads when it comes to evangelicals who study Mormonism, and it kind of goes for all new religious movements and even to, to some degree for the uh, major world religions, is that one road is kind of the counter cult, the counter world religion. We're going to go out and scream about Joseph Smith and his 34 wives. We're going to go scream about Muhammad, Charles S. Russell, uh, you know, David Koresh, whoever it may be. And we're going to put our fingers in their faces and say, you're in a cult and going to hell. So that's the that's one side. The other side is the really kind of academic, 
we're just going to be nice to everybody's side. That's, that's really best term comparative religion. Mm. So it's the idea that let's just look at what they believe, compare it to Christianity and stop and never make a gospel call. But all the way through the new Testament, you see not only Jesus, but the, the, uh, the apostles and the early church in acts, anytime the gospel is presented, one of the major aspects of presenting the gospel is a call for repentance and faith. So what I wanted to do is, is kind of bridge that gap and say, okay, what we need is we need somebody out there or some bodies out there saying, here's all the compare and contrast. Um, at the same time saying, look, these guys have it wrong on these major doctrines. We need to present the gospel to them as effectively as possible and call them to faith. So that's really where my love comes down is, yeah, let's look at this academically. Let's look and see what does a Mormon believe from a Mormon's perspective. Yeah. And if you, uh, you know, you've read it, but if you read the Saints of Zion, you'll see that probably 75 or 80 percent of the book is just direct quotes yeah. from Mormons. Because if we can figure out what they believe from their perspective, then we have a good starting point for where to have conversation from there. Yeah. And if we know what they believe from their perspective, then we know how to most effectively share the gospel with them. So it's an attempt to say, hey, here's the academic side of it. Let's do a deep, honest, objective study, as objective as we can, of various faith traditions so that we know it well enough to be able to present the gospel in as effective a way as possible. Yeah. Yeah. It, you referenced um, the book Saints of Zion. Like I was actually I've read. I don't want to say every, but I feel like I'm constantly reading textbooks, um, constantly reading comparative, you know, Houston Smith. Um, uh, so, so many people who have written classically on world religions. And like you said, it's very coexist -y. Yeah. Um, or on the on the evangelical side, it's very vitriol. It's very um, straw man ish, if you if you will, like um, and Saints of Zion actually reads almost like like a Mormon would pick an LDS would pick that up and, and say, yeah, this is, this is it. And you, you can make a concerted effort to what we might call steel man, their arguments, like say, right. this is, this is what they would say. Um, do you kind of like with this method that you're obviously teaching out in Southwestern and putting out through your academic writings, um, are you sort of arguing then for a Christian to think more about like Acts 17, where Paul is at the Areopagus at Mars Hill, and he obviously is demonstrating a very in-depth understanding of Stoicism and Epicurean philosophy and saying, I understand you and I respect you enough to listen to how you think, but this is actually the truth of the matter, the truth of the unknown God. Is that sort of maybe a, an apt description for the listener to say, that's maybe what we should do, be doing with cults and world religions in general? Yeah, that's that. That's exactly right. So I use that analogy uh, and that text all the time with students and tell them, look, when Paul's at the Areopagus in Acts 17, he obviously knows Stoicism and Epicureanism so well that he's able to say, look, I've, I've, I've read your poets. Mm -hmm. I've seen your uh, your statues you've erected. Uh, and as you go through his uh, his speech there at the Areopagus, what you see is is that he never says Stoic or Epicurean ever. Mm -hmm even though he's surrounded by Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. But if you know even a little bit about Stoicism and Epicureanism, you realize that every single phrase that he utters directly addresses either Stoicism or Epicureanism or both. Mm -hmm. But he never says Stoicism or Epicureanism. He never says because of this, he never puts you know, his finger in their face or anything like that. But what he does is he adapts his gospel presentation to fit the need of the people that he's with. So what Paul's doing is he's not forcing the unbeliever to come and meet him where he is. 
he's meeting the unbeliever where he or she is at and saying, let me not change the gospel. Let me mold my presentation such that everything that I say or the emphasis that I put in certain aspects of the gospel will scratch every itch that you have in your world. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, for, for listeners, I, I'm glad that we were able to get this out of the way because that's my heart too. And what we do with all things, all people, how I teach world religions. Um, I think oftentimes people are disappointed when they talk to maybe me or somebody like you. I don't know your, your personal experiences because it seems like they want, sometimes they hear you say, Oh, I teach apologetics and world religions. So they expect you to say, here's five ways you can debunk this and this and this and this. And they're probably often very frustrated when you say, well, actually you should really spend time with them. You should really right. listen to them. And, um, and you know, that, that makes me think about the years that you spent in Salt Lake city. And, um, I have seen, um, a rising activity out of the Latter-day Saints, um, at least even in my own community. Um, you were there in the heart of Salt Lake city though, working, as I've mentioned, as a pastor and missionary, and I've heard you describe and I'm sure that this has been something that you've asked, been asked very often is people will say, what's it like there? What's the culture like there? And, and I've heard you um, say, you know, Mormon culture is really just mountain culture, the mountain West and, and all these things, but it had to be strange being an evangelical Baptist, even specifically, which Baptists and the LDS have not always gotten along very well. Um, we are to blame for quite a bit of that, but um what was that experience like for you um, ministering in one of the few places in the United States where not that we're a minority, but evangelicals don't have as much footing as they have in many other places? Yeah. So a couple of things are true. The first thing that was a real shock to our system. Uh, I grew up in South Carolina. My wife's from North Carolina. So yeah. we're both Southeasterners. Um, you know, we're used to certain things in culture, certain ways that culture works. Uh, so the first big shock was moving to the Mountain West, where in the South, if you're within 10 feet of somebody in the store, you have to speak to them and wave mm -hmm. or, you know, you're the jerk in the community. Yeah. Uh, in the West, you know, if you're within six inches of somebody and you even acknowledge their presence, it's like, what do you want? Why are you speaking to me? Yeah. That sort of thing. So that's that's one very difficult thing. The second thing it was difficult is for people from the South moving to the West historically people move from the South to the West to get away from something they've done and kind of restart life. Mm -hmm. And usually they go to the West to try to sell something mm -hmm. to people that are there. So, you know, it was a, it was a pretty big uh, difficulty for us because we say y'all and eat grits yeah. um, to move into the mountain West culture, to be able to build trust. Um, the biggest difference though was, was what you mentioned, which is going from a very Christianized culture and society in the South and Southeast into a very non-Christianized culture and society. So Utah as a state is 98% non-evangelical. It's only 2% uh, evangelical. In fact, their entire counties, this may surprise or, or may not some listeners, their entire counties in Utah that don't even have a Christian living in the county mm -hmm. that we know of. Uh, so what, you know, county, entire counties that are hundred percent lost and have been since their founding in the 1840s. So I mean, this is a very, very lost culture. It's a very lost community. The, the city we lived in, our particular subdivision, had about a thousand families in it. We knew of three, including our own, that were not Mormon. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, we're just surrounded by it. Uh, so it was, it was very difficult. You know, when you walk out in your front yard, everybody knows who you are because you don't go to the local meeting house on Sunday. 
everybody knows your name. When our son would go outside to play, all the other kids point and laugh at him. Hmm. Uh, and as a dad, that's, that's not an easy thing to go through. My wife had the same experiences as a mom, you know, that's, that's difficult to go through those things. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was, it was not easy, but it was a, it was a very good, very profitable six years we spent there. Yeah. And for a lot of people, they don't realize um, when they hear Salt Lake City, of course, that's attached to the Latter-day Saints. And um, that's off, that that's probably in the, the, the front of everybody's mind. But we, most people I've found don't really even know the history of Utah and Salt Lake City, that essentially mm-hmm. it was founded by the LDS, um, led by Brigham Young after the, uh, the assassination of Joseph Smith there in Nauvoo, Illinois. And um it's interesting to me teaching LDS that, of course, when we think of the Latter-day Saints about the Mormons, we think of the missionaries at our door. Um, yep. But I've actually found, and, and I'm curious to know kind of what your experience has been, that most evangelical Christians, in many of whom might even be interested in, in helping to evangelize Latter-day Saints, don't have any semblance of an understanding of the early days of the Latter-day Saints. Have you, has that been your experience dealing with specifically even Baptist culture, but evangelical culture in general? Yeah. Most people not only have, you know, no idea about the early foundations of Mormonism, they really have no idea what Mormonism even is. Yeah. Uh, The biggest question, and this was somewhat shocking to me. uh, One of the main questions I would get from Southern Baptists around the U S is I would travel around to talk about Salt Lake and try to get support and prayer support, things like that is usually they would say, well, why do we have missionaries in Salt Lake? Everybody there's Christian. Yeah. And as you start explaining Mormonism, they say, oh, oh, it's not Christian. And, mm-hmm. and I would say, well, yeah, it's very not. In fact, right. it's the polar opposite of, mm-hmm. of what we would call Orthodox Christianity. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, I think it's not just a, a lack of understanding of, of the history. It's a lack of understanding of the totality of Mormonism and how big it is. Mm-hmm. Southern Baptist Convention's got about 15 million people around the world. Mormonism's got about 16 million. So it's yeah. a little bit larger now than the SBC. And um, financially, they're the largest religion in the world. A uh, report was, was leaked last year that showed that the LDS Church has two times the liquid assets of the Vatican. And Roman Catholicism has been around for, you know, yeah. 1,400, 1,500 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mormons have been around since 1830. So... Mm-hmm. You've got one that's been around 190 years versus one that's been around 1500. Yeah. And the one that's been around 190 years is twice as wealthy. Uh, yeah. So it, it's a significant, um, not only lack of understanding about who they are, but it's a significant lack of understanding of how powerful they are yeah. Yeah. and the influence they have. Absolutely. And, and it's crazy to think, too you know, we mentioned and classified them as a new religious movement already. Um, when I begin to tell somebody that, you know, Interestingly enough, it started in the early 19th century with a young man in upstate New York who says that he found or, you know, he was shown visions uh, leading him to these these two tablets and he translated them through seer stones. And when you really begin to unpack that and then especially some of the events um, of Joseph Smith's life leading down to southern or western Illinois. And that's really where the, the, the teachings that have begun to classify the LDS um, began there in Nauvoo, Illinois, when you think about Joseph Smith and when you're telling people about him in the early days of the LDS, um, I'm sure a question that you've gotten from time to time then is uh, similar to maybe what we would call C.S. Lewis's trilemma in regards to Jesus is, okay, he's making a ton of grandiose claims 
he seems as if, if you read the Joseph Smith papers, which I know that you have, um, you know, he, in his own personal diaries, he seems to believe much of what he's saying about the celestial kingdom and about plural marriage and all of these things. So I guess just to get to the heart of it, in your opinion, as, as an expert on LDS and the life of Joseph Smith, um, before we unpack some of the more integral teachings, do you think Joseph Smith uh, genuinely believed what he was saying and these early foundations of the LDS, or do you think uh, there might've been something wrong with him? Um, because, because obviously, you know, you and I being evangelicals, we, we definitely don't agree that he was the prophet that he said he was. Right. So usually when I get this kind of question, uh, the answer that I give is, is a bit shocking um, because I don't think he was a liar. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I don't think he was crazy. Uh, I don't think he's making stuff up. I don't think he's mentally incapacitated or anything like that. I think he legitimately believed what he said he believed. Mm -hmm. I think he had legitimate visions of spirit beings. Um, now, the way that he describes those, what what I would look at, you know, a Mormon's going to look at it and say, oh, these are angels sent by God mm -hmm. uh, to reveal new information. But in the same way that I believe Muhammad uh, heard an angel and he dictated the Quran. I believe that that's a demon masquerading as an okay. angel. Yeah. So I think the same thing is true for Joseph Smith. I think an, an angelic spiritual being visited him uh, in 1820, again in 1823, uh, and then again in 1827. Uh, but I think those are demons masquerading yeah. as angels. Uh, you know, the, yeah. the scriptures tell us that, that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And I think, I absolutely believe that Joseph Smith thinks that he saw the father and the son mm -hmm. uh, in 1820. Uh, but those were demonic uh, beings, again, masquerading as the father and the son. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think he's crazy. I don't think he's lying. I think he genuinely had those those visions. I think he had those those uh, beings visit him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But they were demons. Yeah. I'm, I mean, and I'm the difficulty. Honest, yeah. The difficulty with that is, is that a lot of times, especially for a southern evangelical, yeah. is we don't think about this other reality that's out there, the spiritual reality that's out there uh, that involves angels and demons. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting when you read the new Testament, Paul in first Corinthians, for example, uh, says uh, to the ladies in the church in Corinth, cover your head on account of the angels. And he just keeps going and he never explains it. Right. He just assumes that they not only understand what he's talking about, but that they believe in this other reality that's mm -hmm. out there. Um, so it's not like we're talking about Casper, the friendly ghost or anything. Yeah. We're talking about something that the Bible assumes exists. I, I'm honestly really glad to hear you say that because I think it is often explained away too simply. And, you know, I mean, you're more well-versed in missiology than I am. Like there's this concept called the excluded middle. Um, you know, you, you've probably read Paul Hebert more than I have too. Um, but, uh, you know, to the listeners who might be shocked by that answer, whether they, maybe they, they, they belong to a, a faith tradition within Christianity that that answer wouldn't necessarily be at the tip of their tongue. If you read these Joseph Smith papers, which I know that you have, and for listeners, you can go on the, the LDS websites and go to the Joseph Smith project papers project, and you can read extensively his personal journals, his personal, like the records that he kept of the revelation and the secretaries kept. Um, I completely agree with you because when you read, it's like, if this is a cover-up, it is maybe the most intricate cover-up in the history of, of humanity because he spent yep. years documenting these things, um, which then if you know much about the history of 
the early days, especially the move, they were uh, the extermination order coming out of Missouri. Um, for those who don't know, the early LDS church was first uh, in New York and then Ohio and then Missouri and then Illinois before they made their way to, to Utah. Um, but they're in Nauvoo, Illinois, um, Western, right, Western Illinois, right on the Mississippi River. Um, we begin to see Joseph Smith really take over as prophet, as mayor, as uh, brigadier general um, of the Nauvoo Legion. Um, and this is really beginning to see some of the teachings and revelation like plural marriage um, or, or polygamy um, and and really what might be considered like a, a totalitarian regime um, there happening before the the uh, assassination and move to Utah. Um, so when you have talked to people in Mormonism, um, how do you broach those subjects of like, you know, Hey, these guys who founded the church, they, they were not the, the best examples um, of the teachings of Jesus. And in some cases completely went against them. How, what's your approach been there? And then what's been the response like from uh, faithful LDS? Yeah. So usually um, the only type of person I'm going to speak yeah. to in Mormonism about issues like that is going to be a, a professor at BYU. Okay. So the average Mormon on the street, I'm not even going to bring that up. Mm -hmm. Uh, if I've got five or 10 minutes with somebody on the street or a missionary at my door, uh, I have to make a decision if I'm going to spend five or 10 minutes on Joseph Smith or I'm gonna, if I'm going to spend five or 10 minutes on Jesus. And that's not even the decision I have to make. Mm -hmm. um, if I spend that time on Joseph Smith and it drives them deeper into hell, if I spend it on Jesus, then it potentially brings them out of hell into heaven and, mm -hmm. and brings them from death to life. So, uh, but specifically to answer your question, I've had plenty of, of Mormon scholars uh, at BYU and other institutions around the Mountain West, uh, you know, ask me those, you know, or talk about those sorts of issues. Smith was, you know, uh, morally bankrupt in some areas. Brigham yeah. Young was in some areas. Very much so. Um, and their response is, is, I think, legitimate. I think it's valid. And that is, so was Abraham. Mm -hmm. So was Moses. So was David. You know, Joseph Smith didn't send his leading general out to the front of the battlefield. Mm -hmm. and tell the other guys to get him killed so that he could go sleep with his wife. Mm -hmm. But David did that. And he's called a man after God's own heart. So the Mormon response usually is, look, he was human like everybody else. And I think that's legitimate. I think that's mm -hmm. a, that's a good answer from them. And I think we have to take it on face value. Uh, I'm not saying that what Joseph Smith did was right. I'm right. just saying everybody's human. We all have sin and we shouldn't expect perfection uh, from anybody. I mean, even Catholics don't claim perfect, uh, perfection for the Pope. Right. So they would say, look, if Joseph Smith is doing something wrong, he's not operating in his prophetic office. If he says something, unless he says, thus saith the Lord, it's not a specific prophecy, unless he claims for it to be prophecy in some way, shape or form, it's not prophecy. Um, mm -hmm. Now there are still some where he says, thus saith the Lord, and they failed miserably. Right. Um, but, you know, his actions usually are dismissed fairly easily. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, you mentioned like professors that you've, you've spoken with from BYU, Brigham Young University. And th one thing I think that many people don't realize um, is that the Latter-day Saints have invested so much time, so much energy and money into establishing not just BYU, but really a sphere of um, academic scholarship that is almost unrivaled in a lot of ways because um 
they are tremendous historians. And I think that that even stems from the uh, familial and like the ancestry research that they do in the temples to uh, practice baptism of the dead, um, which is, uh, well, actually, I'm talking to you. Could you explain? <laughs> I'm used to explaining these things. I'm like, well, I was just like, for, for the listener, before, before we talk about the academic side of, of LDS, um, they are phenomenal researchers, and, and it even takes place in the temple, like I said, because of their focus on family research. Um, mm -hmm. Could you explain what they believe about baptism of the dead and why they are so extensive in researching their family ancestry? Yeah, so Mormons believe that baptism is a necessary prerequisite to entrance in the celestial kingdom. Now, that's simple. The, the simple way to kind of boil all that down is baptism is necessary for salvation. Right, That's the yeah. easiest way to do it. Mm -hmm. um, Joseph Smith uh, originally didn't start out teaching baptism for the dead. Uh, so what that simply is, is that because baptism is necessary for salvation, uh, if somebody dies prior to being baptized, Joseph Smith later in his life teaches that you can go, a living person can go and be baptized for and on behalf of someone who's dead. And then that baptism in uh, in this life will then work in the afterlife as long as it's accepted mm -hmm. uh, by the person, uh, uh, you know, on behalf of uh, of whom the baptism is being performed. Right. So Smith actually develops that when his brother gets sick and dies. Uh, Smith already was teaching baptism regeneration. But when his brother got sick and died, he said, I, I had a revelation. There's evangelism in the afterlife. There's baptism in the afterlife. So Mormons will go to the temple um, uh, to do proxy baptisms. That's baptism for and on behalf of someone who's died. They also do proxy uh, endowments, which is uh, two basic rooms in the temple. You learn about basic Mormon doctrine and they do proxy sealing. So proxy wedding. Those are the three of the uh, are the three proxy things they do in the temple. Baptism for the living is done in the local meeting house. Baptism for the dead is done in the temple. Um, but they're searching out their family history to make sure that uh, that all persons in their family history, as far back as they can go, uh, have been at least uh, offered uh, baptism in the afterlife. So if I'm Mormon and my grandparents died and they were not Mormon, I'd go be baptized for and on their behalf so that in the afterlife they'd have that chance later. Um, mm -hmm. An interesting side note of that is, is that has then uh, allowed the Mormon church to develop the largest genealogical library in the world. So if any listeners have done work on familytree.com or ancestry.com, or you've done 23andMe, the DNA testing and that sort of thing to find ancestors around the world, that's all owned and run by the LDS church, every bit of it. Yeah. Uh, in yeah. fact, the largest store of microfilm of genealogical records is in Salt Lake County. Uh, it's up in Big Cottonwood Canyon, which is one of the, uh, one of the main canyons in Salt Lake. And there's a huge cave that's been uh, burrowed out of one of the mountains there on the western side or on the eastern side of the valley, but in the Wasatch Mountains. And that's where they store all that microfilm. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the basic reason for it. Yeah. So they're doing baptism for the dead. They're doing ceilings for the dead. Mm -hmm. And so I, obviously you did a tremendous job answering that question. I'm glad I asked you. But, uh, you know, for I think many American Christians fall into this trap of when they think about another religious movement, um, especially one that is like a sectarian Christian movement, in this case, the LDS, I feel as if they completely write them off and say, well, that's, that's stupid. I can't believe anybody would believe that. And, 
as I listen to you and as I've read your words, I hear you, as I've already said, steel manning these arguments and saying, listen, when they say this, you know, understand that within their their worldview. Um, what is the uh, you know, because you are one of the few people that I know of that have have worked both with the the. LDS lay people there in Salt Lake City, but then also, as you've mentioned, have relationships with the LDS academics in places like BYU. What is the academic culture like with LDS? It, there, there has to essentially be LDS apologetics, just like there's evangelical apologetics and uh, religious scholarship coming out of the LDS church. And because like you've already mentioned, they are very um, thorough researchers already. Um, they, they, there has to be a lot that going on there in Salt Lake City that many evangelicals are unaware of. Yeah, you know, their, uh, their research interests are at BYU, kind of the same as you would find at, at an evangelical institution. So they're rigorous. Uh, they try to be objective in what they do. Uh, they're, they're very good at research uh, historically. And when I say that, I mean the last 25 to 30 years. Uh, there have been groups at BYU that have tried to give a very detailed, and when I say detailed, I mean if a, uh, if a 300-page book came out on Mormonism, they would offer a 1,000-page response. I mean, yeah. just that, that kind of detail. Uh, that was a group that was at BYU called FARMS, the Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies. That has since, in the last five to six years, been done away with. Uh, the guy who was running it, his name was Daniel Peterson, Peterson uh, was an Islamic studies scholar, an Arabic scholar, but was kind of running their apologetic arm uh, for BYU. But uh, he wasn't exactly uh, a fun-loving, outgoing personality. Mm -hmm. So hence the 300-page book with the 1,000-page response. I mean, they would just do overkill and everything. So the church is now, the LDS church has now started something at BYU called the Maxwell Institute, and it's more of a religious studies center. Mm -hmm. It's actually run by a guy I know very well. His name is Spencer Fluman, PhD from the University of Wisconsin. Brilliant guy, mm -hmm. uh, but very, very LDS. In fact, he's a bishop uh, or has served as a bishop. Right. Um, and they do more uh, kind of comparative religion, academic study than they do outright apologetic study. Uh, mm -hmm. They're trying to offer academic resources to mainstream LDS. They've just done a multi-volume series on the Book of Mormon. It's called mm -hmm. A Brief Theological Introduction to the Book of Mormon. It's on every book inside the Book of Mormon. Um, so they're, you know, they're good at what they do. In fact, BYU has the number one uh, conservative law school in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, a member of the, uh, of the First Presidency right now. In fact, he's the first counselor in the First Presidency, Dallin Oaks is probably the greatest living conservative constitutional law scholar mm -hmm. in the United States. So they are very, very good at what they do. They're very serious about it. Uh, they do not take research lightly. BYU is a major research institution, 35,000 mm -hmm. students, and sits right in the heart of the uh, kind of the cultural capital of Mormonism in Provo. Yeah, yeah. Has there been much response to your work um, from the LDS? Uh, like, have you had any responses to Saints of Zion and the work you've been doing? Yeah, I've sent it to some buddies of mine who either are former BYU profs or current BYU profs. And basically what I ask them is, I know you're going to disagree with my conclusions. Right. That's fine. But did I get Mormonism right? Mm -hmm. And their basic response throughout has been, yes, Mormonism, you got it right. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, you know, average everyday lay Mormons that I talk to, uh, as I explain Mormonism to them, because they'll say, what do you think Mormonism is? And as I explained, they'll say, okay, at least you got that right. We disagree with the conclusions you make, but yeah. 
you know, you right. got Mormonism right. So for me, yeah. that's that's winning the first leg of the battle. Yeah. Well, having said all that, and and you know, many listeners, I, one of the most common common questions that I get um, is is probably the most common question that you get is, I have a family member, I have a friend who's LDS. We'll talk yeah. about missionaries, but you know, that's a whole different thing. Um, before we even ask what, how to share the gospel with somebody, because I think I know your answer in regards to that. What do you wish, um, like the bullet points of what the quote unquote average Christian knew about LDS thinking and belief? Um, like if you could go, if you could walk into a church and say, I want everybody here to know this about Mormonism, um, what, what would those things be? Yeah, so four really easy, simple bullet points. First is the doctrine of God. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, any any scholar in religion uh, that studies deity in religion is going to say we're defining these religions based on what on how you define deity inside that religion. One worldview scholar named James Sire says how you answer the question "What is deity?" will drive how you answer every other question. So in Mormonism, uh, you know, God is a created being who still lives in a physical body. Brigham Young said he's about 6'2". He weighs about 235 pounds when he's, when he's speaking in the tabernacle in Salt Lake City. holds his hand up. Brigham Young goes and said, God's hand is this big. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, has a, has a physical wife in heaven called Heavenly Mother. Um, th- this is a very, very different deity yeah. than the one we see presented in the Old and New Testaments. Very different. In fact, diametrically opposed. Uh, Malachi tells us God is not a man that he should lie. Um, you know, all over the place, Jesus, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. But in Mormonism, God is not a spirit. He's a physical being. Uh, so really, that's the, that's the major thing. You know, uh, what I see Christians all the time wanting to get in the conversation with Mormons about grace and works. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about scriptural books. And let's talk about your interpretation of this verse in the Bible or that verse in the Bible. None of that matters. Mm-hmm. What matters is, is when we disagree on the most fundamental question, on the doctrine of God, these are two completely different faith traditions. And one, Mormonism is going to say, we're interpreting it through the lens of Joseph Smith, yeah, who believes he's interpreting it through the lens of the apostles in his way. And we're going to say, we're interpreting who God is based on the lens of the apostles, the early church. And, and these are just diametrically opposed types of thinking about who God is. So until we get God right, and the only thing that's going to do that for a Mormon is the preaching of the gospel and the converting power of the Holy Spirit, period, end of story. No argument you can make is going to make the Mormon go, oh yeah, you're right. I shouldn't be Mormon anymore. You got mm-hmm. um, The only thing that's going to change the Mormon is, is Romans 1. Paul says it's the power of the gospel that's there for salvation. So that's really the biggest thing. Uh, you know, there's a couple of little things here and there that most people think is true about Mormonism, but is very much not true. The first one is they still have multiple wives. Right. Uh, the Salt Lake Church, which is among Mormon scholars called the Brighamites because they followed Brigham Young, mm-hmm. have not practiced polygamy openly since 1890. Uh, so it's been, you know, 130 years now. Mm-hmm. Now, there are breakoff groups inside of Mormonism. Right. They still do practice plural marriage, but the, the large one, the, the 15 million member one does not. And the other common misconception is they don't drink caffeine. Right. Yeah. Mormons very much drink caffeine. Yeah. Um, what they don't drink is they don't drink coffee and tea. And that's because of a, a specific interpretation 
of a passage in Doctrine and Covenants 89, one of their scriptural references uh, that was interpreted as coffee and tea. Right. Uh, but common misconception, they've got multiple wives, they don't drink caffeine. So, you know, that both of those are, are equally untrue. Yeah. I think it's funny too. And I think you'll agree. It, it's somewhat disturbing, really, if, if you and I just kind of thinking about addressing the cleanliness of our, of our own house, um, that when we say, hey, why aren't Mormons Christians? Or we say, what, why would we evangelize Mormons? Like you, you said, is that too often the answer from the modern day American evangelical is what you just said. Well, they have multiple wives or they, they're okay with polygamy, something to do with Joseph Smith. And then just the weird stuff that they've heard. But like you've already pointed out, most evangelical Orthodox Christians don't even realize that their teachings on theology proper, the, the theology of God is, I mean, it's nothing like what the Bible teaches. And, um, and, and, and those answers in and of themselves are, are, are an argument for, uh, people like you to be in business (laughs) that that we do need more world religions, educations, even at just the, the lay level of, of our churches. Um, and so, you know, as you've said, the presenting the gospel, and I've heard you, I've heard you say, present the gospel to a Mormon the same way you would anybody else, right? Don't nope. try and uh, don't try and change it. Although you, as we already mentioned at the Areopagus, you might want to be familiar with what their beliefs are, but let's say, um, you know, somehow I just can't imagine that you're not on some blacklist at the local ward where the, where the, the, two, the two year missionaries, no, don't go to professor Kearns's house. Uh, let's say they knock on your door and say, Hey, we'd like to talk to you about a message from Joseph Smith. Um, What's your approach with, with LDS yeah, mission? So this, this just happened a few weeks ago in Nashville. We were there for the Southern Baptist Mission annual meeting. Yeah. And another prof here, a colleague of mine, Dr. Matt Queen, who's our professor of evangelism, he and I were walking through downtown Nashville, uh, right by the convention meeting hall. And we saw, I, I looked up there and I saw four guys in short sleeve white shirts and dark ties. And I thought, surely not. Didn't they know what was in town that weekend? Yeah, well, I, I think they were down there for that particular reason. Because they were talking yeah. to people right inside the... Uh, right outside the meeting hall where the convention was meeting. Uh, and I said, Dr. Queen, we're not going to our meeting. We're going to witness to four Mormon missionaries. And he mm-hmm. said, let's go. He was all excited. Yeah. So my approach then is the same approach I would have if two missionaries came to the door. And that is, uh, I just want to talk to them, get to know them as an individual human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not the enemy next door. They're not the people that, you know, we usually think, oh, when you think about cults, you think about people riding goats and sacrificing babies in the basement, or they've got, you know, yeah. Uh, candles in the shape of a pentagram and they're lighting them in certain forms and fashions and they're chanting in Latin. That's Mm -hmm. not who Mormons are. Mormons are normal people that want something better for their kids than what they have and something better for their grandkids and on and on. So what I do is try to get to know them, find out where they're from. Usually if they're from Utah, I'm going to know something about their particular area. Just connect with them in a human way, Mm -hmm. treat them like a, like a human being. Um, and then just, uh, you know, after a few minutes of, of small talk, just ask a very simple question. Hey, tell me the one thing you could boil your entire faith down into one thing. Tell me the one thing you appreciate the most about your faith. Very, very simple question. You know, don't give me the official answer. I've heard the missionary discussions. Mm-hmm. Don't give me something from one of the prophets or one of the apostles. Tell me what you appreciate the most about your faith. And it was interesting. We were talking to the we didn't get to talk to all four of them. We got to talk to three of those missionaries in Nashville. But among those three, all three gave an answer that sounded something like or some version of it makes me happy 
mm-hmm. or it works for me and my family. Yeah, right. And that's usually what I get from Mormons when I ask them, this is what we got in Salt Lake for six years. Uh, some version of happiness, oh, it works for my family. We've always been Mormon, something like that. Mm-hmm. So what I always encourage Christians to do when talking to a Mormon is ask that question and ask that question of any person, mm-hmm. any any unbeliever that you meet, ask, what do you, are you, are you a religious person? If yes, what do you appreciate the most about your faith? What does it really mean to you individually? So what I encourage Christians to do is simply respond with, well, could I tell you what I appreciate the most about my faith? And then you want to respond in a way that's going to meet the need of the person you're speaking to. So hence the need for learning about all these different faith traditions. But even if you don't know anything about these faith traditions, you can simply respond with, look, What I appreciate the most about my faith is that I know beyond the shadow of any doubt because of what Jesus did in spite of what I've done, in spite of who I am, in fact, diametrically opposed to who I am and and diametrically opposed to what I've done because of Jesus' death on the cross, his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, uh, that when I die because I've placed my faith and my trust in the work of Christ on the cross, that I will hear, well done, good and faithful servant enter now into rest. And it's not dependent on any work I've done. It's not dependent on obedience. It's not dependent on allegiance. It's fully dependent on my faith and trust in Christ. Does that work out in good works? Yes, it shows itself in good works, but it's in no way, shape or form dependent on those good works. It's a very simple mm-hmm. kind of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 gospel presentation. Now, if you know something about these faith traditions with Mormons, for example, I when we were talking to those three missionaries just a few weeks ago, I stressed the idea that Jesus is the final prophet, priest, and king, and that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So in the Old Testament, we needed physical prophets, physical priests, physical kings, physical temples in order to mediate between humans and God. But now that Jesus has come, Hebrews tells us he's the final prophet, priest, and king. And the New Testament tells us that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So I don't need a priest in between me and God. I don't need a building, a physical building between me and God to mediate or for me to even get closer to God. So what I've done when I say that to the Mormon is I've hit two big issues in in Mormonism, which is the need for temples and the need for the LDS church as an institution. Mm -hmm. I would say the same thing to a Roman Catholic. I don't need a, I don't need a physical priest, a human mediator. I've got Jesus is the one mediator Mm -hmm. as Paul tells Timothy. So that's what I would do. I would just Mm -hmm. simply say and encourage every Christian to say, what do you appreciate about your faith? And listen to the person, listen to them talk. Uh, and then say, could I tell you what I appreciate about mine? It's that knowing beyond the shadow of any doubt because of my faith and trust in Christ that I'll hear well done, good and faithful servant. Mm-hmm. And just knowing about um, the typical LDS missionary response to that, it, it most likely, and I don't know what it was in Nashville just a couple weeks ago, but um, is, oh, that's great. You, you yep. know, uh, that's great. Thanks for sharing that with me. And, you know, would you say then the hope then is a believe enough in the power of prayer that as you walk away and pray for that person that that the Lord has planted a seed of the gospel in their heart, that who knows, maybe when they go home to Salt Lake or that night in their apartment that mm-hmm. well, maybe just maybe and then even if you're in the opportunity, you weren't necessarily in that but to set up follow-up meetings, if, if it's somebody who knocked at your door and it's appropriate for you to say, Hey, I'd love to follow up with you. And come back. Um, is that something you'd encourage the average Christian to, to pursue with an LDS missionary? Yeah, absolutely. The biggest thing I would encourage Christians as well is in this, it's that it's not our responsibility. According to the new Testament, it's not our responsibility to save somebody. Mm-hmm. It's not our responsibility to try to argue somebody into the kingdom. Mm-hmm. The new Testament is plain. It's our responsibility to share the gospel. 
and to do so as, as plainly and as clearly as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I tend to argue, and well, not tend to, I do argue that the clearest and plainest way to present the gospel is by quoting scripture itself. Because again, Paul says in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we're simply presenting the gospel with the words that the Holy Spirit has given, then we trust the Holy Spirit to do the work. It's our job to present. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict uh, and convert. So uh, if I have an opportunity, yes, I'm going to set up a follow-up meeting, hopefully talk to them later. But the vast majority of Mormon missionaries I've talked to in 25 or in 20 plus years, 25 years now, has been, oh, that's nice. Thanks for sharing. Mm-hmm. And you know what? That can be really kind of off-putting for the Christian evangelist. And you want to say, man, I'm, I'm really bad at this. But right. the New mm-hmm. Testament says you present the Holy Spirit convicts and converts. So as long as I'm presenting the gospel as often as I can, when I'm presented the opportunity that I'm being faithful. Yeah. I was researching, this happened a couple of years ago. I was researching the LDS and in all of my time as a pastor and studying world religions, I've never had a Mormon missionary come to my door, which is heartbreaking for people like me and you. And um, I saw on the LDS website request to visit with a Mormon missionary. And I thought, well, th- yeah, thank you very much. You know, so click it. They reach out to me. We had just had a, our, our second child. And so I didn't think it'd be a good idea to have him to the house. And they actually came and sat in my office at our Southern Baptist church here in small yep. town, North Carolina, you know, the area and man, they were nothing but nice. And, um, a friend of mine sat in there and we had a great conversation with them and the exact same thing happened. It was, yep. well, that think, you know, can I share my faith with you? Um, made it clear that we lovingly disagreed. And then at the end they said, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing. And that was it. And, yep. you know, they walk away and you're right as a, as a pastor, as an evangelist, as a, as a teacher, and just as a Christian, it, it can feel like a failure. Right. Um, and that's why I so appreciate your methodology of just saying, you know, you can, you can lead them to water, but you can't make them drink, you know? Yep. And, um, and so from one fellow world religions weirdo to another, um, who I've learned quite a bit from. And now this, this conversation enlightened me even more. Um, I, I'm so thankful for you and the work you're doing at Southwestern and for the listeners, please follow the notes in the show notes to, fo- to find more about Dr. Kearns's work and the stuff that we can expect out of him in the coming years. Dr. Kearns, thank you so much for your time, for your heart, for these, these groups that so often in, especially in our culture, no, nobody gives a lot of time to they're they're far away groups in other lands but you and i both know they're here in our yep. neighborhoods in our schools in our workplaces and so thanks for leading the uh the field um and uh doing su- doing it such a, a great way so thank you so much for your time yeah thanks jeremy thanks for having me